John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, why must the Son of Man be lifted up? John 3, 14 and 15. We'll begin at verse 1 to refresh our memories about the context. John 3, and we'll start at verse 1. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak that which we know and we bear witness of that which we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And no one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven even the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We thank you that it is the true word of God. Thank you, Lord, that it is the source of our salvation because it reveals Christ to us. By these words that we are about to study, we ask that you'll help us to understand this word of truth even better and grant to us, Father, the ability to explain it to others because this is indeed salvation. It is the only means of eternal life. Thank you for Christ and thank you for the word of Christ. Teach us now by your Holy Spirit what this means. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe we are coming near or to the end of this discourse between Nicodemus and Christ. This discourse here in John chapter 3. And to close up this discourse, Jesus uses one more illustration. He uses one more illustration, hopefully for Nicodemus to understand it. And this illustration is coming directly. The the other illustrations he has been using about rebirth, about the wind, and about water, yes, these kinds of things are mentioned in the Old Testament, but if there's going to be one incident, one example, one figure, one person, such as the prophet Moses, now Jesus comes to that point. And Jesus comes to this point in verse 14 to explain to Nicodemus what he must understand, and that he should make a comparison between what Moses taught and what Jesus is teaching. 
make a comparison and understand truly what Moses meant, what Moses taught in its context, and also now what Jesus is teaching. This is why he says in verse 14, and just as Moses, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Just as Moses taught, just as Moses explained, just as Moses illustrated what salvation meant, what salvation is, in the same way Jesus is teaching it. He's teaching that Moses and Jesus are on the same page, and not only on the same page, he's showing to Nicodemus, you know, you know what Moses meant. Why now do you not see, or will you now see what the truth is to believe in him? This is what's happening here in our verses 14 and 15. We also need to focus on this issue. When he says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why must he? Why is it a necessity for the Son of Man to be lifted up? When he's lifted up, there are many reasons for it. There, There is the purpose of God. There is the necessity of a sacrifice. But in our passage, verse 15, he answers that question, in order that, or simply that, or so that, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He's coming now again to the outcome, the outcome in terms of you and me, how it benefits us. If Jesus is not lifted up, then there's going to be no salvation for us. If he's not lifted up, there is no hope for us. If he's not lifted up, there is no benefit and eternal life and forgiveness of sins for us. These are bound up together. No one can separate these issues. They have to be bound up together. The death of Christ is for our redemption. It has to be connected in that way. Verse 14, let's now go through it more slowly and carefully. He says in verse 14, And just as Moses lifted the serpent up, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This phrase, just as and even so, words like this occur in John many, many times. They occur in John about 30, over 30 times, and that's more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke all together. John, in other words, he has a tendency, he has this proclivity to make comparisons so that we clearly understand, to make comparisons between one thing and one incident, one example, one illustration in the Old Testament to what Jesus is and what Jesus means now. He's doing this constantly because that's what we need. We all need that. We all need to understand spiritual truths by that which is physical so we can bridge the gap and make the connection. This is what he's doing. He does it in this case. And now he does it with Moses. When he chose the name Moses, he did not choose uh, Moses arbitrarily. He did not choose Moses arbitrarily. He chose Moses because Moses is the foundational literary prophet. He wrote the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy. He chose Moses on purpose. He chose Moses because Moses became to the people of Israel the indisputable prophet of God. The indisputable prophet of God. Among the Jewish people throughout history, if you were to ask them, or even if you were to ask the Samaritans, and even today there are a few hundred Samaritans uh, living in the Middle East, If you were to ask the Jews or the Samaritans, 
about Moses, there will be universal agreement. Universal agreement. Even if you were to ask a liberal Jew, a liberal Jew who barely believes any of the things that are written in the Old Testament, he will still give some credibility, some credence to Moses being a prophet of God. He will still do that too. That's, that's why he went to Moses. I believe there's another reason why he went to Moses. He went to Moses because among the Jews, there has been a tendency among some of the Jews, among some of the Jews, there has been a tendency to say Moses is the superior prophet and then any other prophet who succeeds him, who comes after him, even prophets such as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they have some good things to say, they have some truths, some inspiration, but their books are not on the level of inspiration and authority with Moses. I believe Jesus knew that too. Even the apostles knew that. And that's why many times they cite Moses in order to have an indisputable foundational representative of the faith that they believe. And they constantly are drawing the people's attention. Listen, we do not have a novel teaching. We do not have a new doctrine. Our doctrine is in harmony, is in conformity to Moses. Moses said these very same things. Now they are being fulfilled. Moses predicted these very same things. Moses preached these very things and now they are being fulfilled before your very eyes. That's the point of Jesus mentioning Moses. Let's look at a couple of examples of this. John 1.45. John 1.45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Philip tells Nathanael, and Jesus is not in the picture yet with Nathanael. Notice the word he, or the expression, Moses in the law and also the prophets. Why aren't the prophets all named? Because they're all put, put in one category. They're all put in one category because Moses has the first and foundational authority in the nation. And in terms of the revelation of God, the written revelation of God, Moses has that central and foundational place. That's why he says, Moses and the prophets. Moses and the prophets. Another example is in Luke 24, 27. Just back a couple of pages. Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. He started, Jesus started with Moses, and Luke says it that way. He began to explain the gospel from Moses, and then he proceeded to all the prophets, the rest of the prophets, starting with Moses. John, John chapter 9. John chapter 9. Now we're going to hear it from their very own words. The people, even the unbelieving people, from their very own words. John chapter 9, verse 28. 28 to 29. Remember, Jesus healed a blind man and now the Jews are interrogating that blind man. And Jesus is not present in this dialogue. Verse 28. And they, the Jews, reviled him, the blind man, and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, 
But as for this man, we do not know where he is from. You see how they mock and slander him? They identify being disciples of Moses and they say, you're Jesus' disciples, as though Jesus preached something different than Moses, which is not the case, but that's their accusation. And then they say, we know that God has spoken to Moses. They assert that fact, that God has indeed spoken to Moses. However, their misunderstanding was that Moses is in conformity to Christ, or Christ is in conformity to Moses. The two, to, uh, the two of them agree. They don't disagree. John chapter 5. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse 45. 545. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom... You have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Christ takes Moses away from them because they think, in verse 45, they have put their hope in Moses, but Moses is going to be the one on the day of judgment to accuse them of not believing him. Because, verse 46, if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Well, if Moses preached a different gospel than Christ, then why is he saying this in verse 46? No, Moses is in harmony with Christ. He preached the same as Christ preached. And if you don't believe what Moses wrote, you won't believe what Jesus spoke. In verse 47, he says, if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? They go together. They cannot be made to contradict. And Jesus is, in a word, in summary, drawing these issues to Nicodemus' attention when he says, and just as Moses. Further, further we see the illustration he used. He says, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Jesus mentions the serpent in the wilderness. In Numbers 21, which we read earlier, in Numbers 21, verses 4 to 9, the people are complaining about their circumstances in the wilderness. So, And they complain against the Lord and against Moses. Against the Lord and Moses. And the Lord sent venomous, poisonous snakes among them, serpents among them, and it killed many of them. And some of them, before they died, some of them before they died, they are concerned about their circumstances and they intercede, they intercede with Moses and, and ask Moses to pray to God and intercede on their behalf. And God says, okay, when you go make yourself a bronze serpent, Put it on a pole, lift up the pole, and whoever looks on that pole, or looks at the serpent on the pole, he will be healed. He will live, it says. He will live. And they, some of them did it, and they lived. It doesn't tell us how many of them did that, but some of them did that and lived. That was the incident that he is alluding to when he mentions the serpent in the wilderness. Now, we have to clarify this. 
Because there's a few ambiguities or few uncertainties when people read this statement, they don't understand what's actually happening with this. Let me uh, attempt to clarify some of these uncertainties or ambiguities. One of them is when Jesus brings this illustration to Nicodemus' attention, he is intending Nicodemus to understand a spiritual meaning associated with the physical healing. There was the physical healing, but it wasn't merely or exclusively a physical incident. It was also a spiritual incident. There is a spiritual component to it. That's why he's bringing it up. That's why Jesus is bringing it up in our context. Jesus is preaching eternal life. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's not preaching health and wealth in this world. He's preaching the kingdom of God, right? To be born again and enter the kingdom of God. So he is preaching spiritual things. Jesus' intention in bringing up the serpent in the wilderness is not to draw Nicodemus' attention to the fact that some of the people looked at the serpent on the pole and their physical life was preserved. He's not intending for them to end it like that. He's intending to go beyond that. He's intending to go beyond that in his illustration. Another point to notice is Jesus is not the only Jew or the first Jew or the last Jew to take it spiritually. Jesus was not the first Jew to take the serpent incident in a spiritual way. He wasn't the first in terms of history, and he wasn't the last in terms of history. I have one illustration before the time of Christ. Um, it's uncertain exactly, but about 50 to 100 years, perhaps even 150 years before the time of Christ, and then another one about 100 to 200 years after the time of Christ and the apostles. One Jewish quote before and one afterward. The first one is before. Quote, this is a, a Jewish explanation or commentary about the serpent incident. It says, quote, but they were troubled for a small season that they might be admonished having a sign of salvation, having a sign of salvation to put them in remembrance of the commandment of thy law, meaning God's law. They say here that this serpent incident was an admonishment, an admonition, a warning to them, and it had a sign of salvation attached to it. It was a symbol or a sign, an illustration of salvation, and also to make the people remember the commandments of God. Further, he who turned toward it was saved. He who turned toward it was saved, not by what he saw, but by you, meaning God, the Savior of all. What happened was not merely physical, in other words, they were saved by it, not merely because of physical sight, looking at a physical object, the bronze serpent on the pole, by, rather than that, it was because of God, who is the Savior of all. That is before Christ. After the time of Christ, about 100 to 200 years after the time of Christ, 
Quote, but could the serpent slay or the serpent keep alive? They asked the question, but could the serpent, the bronze serpent, could it slay or the serpent keep alive? That is, does it really relate to the serpent? It is rather to teach thee that such time as the Israelites directed their thoughts on high and kept their hearts in subjection to their father in heaven, they were healed. Otherwise, they pined away. There too, they have these expressions <coughs> that it's not the physical serpents or the physical bronze serpent that is the source or, or the, the end point of what that incident was. It was rather that their hearts might be directed on high, their thoughts on high, and their hearts to their Father in heaven. See how they took it spiritually too? Just as Jesus took it spiritually. Furthermore, furthermore, whenever there are these incidents throughout the Old Testament, how should we take them? How should we take them? Are we merely to take them in terms of their physical and historical incidents and circumstances, or should we bridge it to the spiritual meaning? The spiritual meaning. Jude verse 7, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed physically, but Jude says they are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. It's an indication or illustration of eternal spiritual truths. They were thrown into eternal punishment by that. Even the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 10. Turn with me, please, to 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's begins, uh, we can begin reading at verse 6, 10, 6. Now, these things happened as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. And do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the serpents, nor grumble as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. In some of your Bibles, in verse 9, it may have the translation, nor let us try or tempt Christ. It may say Christ, as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. It may say Christ. If it doesn't say Christ and it says the Lord, in Paul's writings, all all or most of the time when he says the word the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's universally known in New Testament scholarship 
that most, if not all the time, Paul says the Lord, he means the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether your Bible says, nor let us tempt or try Christ or the Lord, he means that. So who were they tempting back there in Numbers 21? They were tempting Jesus Christ. And Moses was preaching that to the people that they were tempting that. For example, who was following them also throughout the wilderness? Look at chapter 10, verse 4. All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Paul says, in the wilderness, the rock was Christ in the time of Moses. This is the spiritual component to it, that these incidents in the past do not happen for merely physical reasons. There is a spiritual component to it, which we must understand. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, then we are enlightened in that regard. Now, another clarification on the matter of the serpent has to do with the use of a serpent. The use of a serpent. Isn't the serpent the devil? And usually in Scripture, a bad and evil thing? Yes, but not always, and it doesn't have to be always. For example, in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, 10, 16, Jesus teaches us the way in which we should conduct ourselves in the world. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. He's telling us in a positive way, using a positive aspect of this creature, the serpent or snake, be as shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. When he says be shrewd as serpents, he doesn't mean be deceitful, be crafty, be evil, uh, promote wickedness and deception. He's not talking about that, but use wisdom, be shrewd. Don't be a goober or a gullible person as you walk about in the world. Pay attention and use wisdom. That's what he means by be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. There we have a positive use of the word serpent. And that's the way it was intended in Numbers 21 and in John 3.14. There is a positive aspect to it. Another illustration the Bible uses is lion. Doesn't the Bible call the devil a lion? It says in 1 Peter 5.8, your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There, the lion, in terms of his uh, voraciousness, rapaciousness, he is someone who devours people, right? Wants to destroy you. So he's got that kind of desire to destroy. However, if we're talking about the power of the lion, the kingliness of the lion, the majesty of the lion, Revelation 5.5, 5, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah is a description of our Lord Christ. The lion in its positive sense is a descriptor, a descriptor of Christ in Revelation 5.5. 5. So it, I think knowing this, it's understandable how Jesus would use the serpent or in the time of Moses, God ordained the serpent to be that way. However, there is a, a scriptural or spiritual comparison to make. 
That's another point in this regard. A, uh, a comparison between the serpent that brought death to the people and the serpent that brought life to the people. And what is that? Well, the venom of the actual serpents was the sting from the venom that brought about their death, right? So the sting of the, it brought about death. It permeated their body. It controlled their body. It consumed their whole being, right? Is that not what sin does? Is that not what sin does? The moment the poison of sin enters us, it controls us and takes everything. But on the other hand, the serpent that brought life, that became medicine for us. And isn't that also what is done sometimes when serpents sting people? What is the cure to, to heal them? Sometimes it is the venom, the venom, a small portion of that venom used to heal people, right? So Jesus, who is represented on the pole, the bronze serpent, he is the, the one who does the opposite for the people. He gives them life. Another is that from a distance, from a distance, if you were to see this serpent on a pole from a distance, you might not be able to tell if it were a live one on the pole from a distance, if it were shiny and whatever. If a serpent was from a distance far away, you might not be able to tell if, if it's a, a live one that's there or just dead and you can still see it up there, um, a real serpent or a bronze serpent, right? In terms of its shininess, and if it's from a distance, you might not be able to tell the difference. Well, if we're just looking at Christ from a distance, if we're examining him from a distance, and we're not come up close and, and inspecting who this Jesus Christ is, we might also think, well, he's just another man in history. He was just another religious leader in history. He was just another fanatic who claimed to be a prophet, just another man in history. Many people from a distance, that's what they think. Jesus was one of them, Muhammad was another one, and all the other ones, they, they think just from a distance, superficially, there's no difference. But when you look up close, there is a difference. And what is the difference? Um, the serpent, if we talk in terms of man, mankind, humanity, the serpent has, and men have death within them, do they not? All of us from Adam and Eve, we have death within us. But the one man, when we come up closer and see Jesus and inspect his life, he lived a perfectly obedient life. He died on the cross, not because of his own sins and his own criminal activity, but because of our sins, if we believe in him. But you have to come up close to understand the difference between the humanity of all of us and his own humanity. For by a man came death, and also by a man came the resurrection of the dead. That's the irony. Just like the serpent, the one serpent brought death, the other serpent brought life. The one man, Adam, brought death, the other man, Christ, brought life. Furthermore, they are openly, publicly displayed. Right? The serpent on the pole is publicly displayed, but even Christ on the cross was publicly displayed. That is, the offer of eternal life is something that is to be broadcast. It's supposed to be public. It's supposed to be spread to everyone 
People are supposed to come to that. It's not something that is done in a corner. It's not a secret thing. It's a public thing, something to be displayed for people to notice, for people to understand, for people to have somebody explain it to them. Oh, I see that. I hear that. Well, what does it mean? And we need people to go and tell and explain to others what it exactly means. Furthermore, in both cases, the people had to look at that bronze serpent to be healed. Even we are called to look to the cross. We're supposed to look and contemplate what Jesus accomplished. What is the meaning of his death? Why is he there impaled on a cross? Why is he there? Is it just he died a martyr's death? Was he a political rebel and and the Romans just put him up on the cross to deal with him, to get rid of him like that? So he wouldn't be a troublemaker in the nation anymore or in the empire anymore? Is that the reason he's on the cross? No, we look to the cross in order to contemplate the cross, to understand its meaning. Furthermore, if we are called to look on the cross or, to, or the people in Moses' time to look at the pole, would it not be incredulous? Would it not be incredulous? That is, would it not be hard to believe it? If a, a snake just bit you, and th- then you have somebody saying, you're about to die, right? You are about to die. You're suffering from the venom of the snake. And then if someone were to tell you, hey, listen, Moses went over there, and see over there, uh, 300 feet away, 1,000 feet away, you see he, he raised that pole. Whoever there is in this, this great multitude, if you look over there, you're going to be healed. That person who is suffering Is he going to be thinking, oh, if I just look at that pole, I'll be healed? No, he's not going to be thinking that. He's he's going to think it's incredulous. Are you crazy? Moses, are you crazy? This takes a, a medicinal response. It doesn't take a visual response. But Moses said, no, this for this, it takes a visual response. And this is the way you're going to be healed. So it would require of those people suffering from the snake bite. The, the faith to believe that they would be healed if they looked, not if they went to the local doctor in the camp of the Israelites, right? In the same thing with us. Doesn't the scripture say, doesn't the scripture say in 1 Corinthians chapter 1? For the word, 118, for the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Power of God for what? To heal our soul, to give us life, right? It is the power of God for us. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are of the called, who, those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's the same requirement for us. We have to overcome the silliness of our fleshly reactions to these things. We might think it's foolish and silly to believe that somebody could be a substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. If you ask the average person if he were to give you an honest answer, and sometimes they do, Sometimes they do. And if you witness enough with atheists 
and Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims, they'll look at you like you are crazy. They'll look at you like you are crazy. You mean to tell me, you're telling me that I'm a sinner, there's nothing I can do about my sin, and that I have to believe that somebody, like Jesus of Nazareth, that he died as a substitute to pay the penalty for my sins? You're telling me I have to believe that? They'll laugh at you. They'll laugh at you if they are honest with you. They don't believe that. They think it's completely ridiculous. However, the comparison, another aspect of it, however, it is God's ordained way of healing. That's God's ordained way. It wasn't Moses' idea to make a pole uh, or put the bronze serpent, make the bronze serpent and put it on a pole. It wasn't (laughs) Moses' idea. It was God's idea. If it's God's idea, it's his decree. It's his purpose. It's his will. It's his word. He said, do this. And Moses did it. Being a man of faith, he did it. And in the same way with Christ, didn't Christ say, I lay my, my life down on my own initiative and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my father. John 10, 18. Jesus said the same thing. This commandment I received from my father. So even though you might think it's incredulous, though you might think it's completely ridiculous, this is God's ordained way of salvation. Continuing, it further says in John 3, 14, the serpent that Moses lifted up was in the wilderness. In the wilderness. When we read Numbers 21, and you know from general knowledge, the book of Numbers is primarily taking place in the wilderness or completely taking place in the wilderness. And much of the law of Moses was composed in the wilderness. They are in a barren place, a place where there's no food. They have to depend on other means and even miraculous means in order to survive um, with millions of people living in the desert. Millions and millions living in the desert. So that desert circumstance in which they are all, they're surrounded all by, by the desert, right? In the wilderness, a barren place. That is a symbol of our own condition. And a symbol, a symbol of our own condition. And what is our condition? We are, are we not living in the world? And are we not taught, um, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Whoever then wishes to make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. For whoever loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. But the one who does the will of God abides forever. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, living according to the course of this world, he says. Living according to the course of this world. So in the wilderness, we cannot, or in the world, we cannot depend on the people all around us. We cannot depend on the circumstances all around us. Our hope has to be a miraculous sustenance and a miraculous maintenance while we are in the world, which comes from heaven. That's the comparison. And Jesus is highlighting this, showing him that you cannot depend, just as Israel in the wilderness could not depend on the circumstances and all the people around them. And we also read in Numbers 21, there were many enemies all around them that didn't trust them, that were out to get them. 
and they were able to conquer their enemies, Sihon and Og and others, they were able to conquer them, not based on their own power and strength, but because of the work of God in their life, the power of God in their life to overcome their wilderness circumstances, which is the same with us. If Unless we have a deposit of power from heaven, we're not going to make it. Not at all. Moreover, it mentions the Son of Man. We have studied the Son of Man before because this is not the first occurrence of the phrase here. But very briefly, when he identifies the, the source, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Who is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is human or fleshly. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of Man is not a phantom, is not a ghost, is not irreal, nothing like that. The Son of Man is real. And that's an important aspect of who the Son of Man is. He is also man, or a man, a male, a man, as prophesied in the Old Testament. A son shall be given, right? Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. A son, not a daughter, but a son. He had to be born a man or a male. He came into the world perfect, and he maintained his perfection throughout all his life. He needed to have perfect obedience, known as his active obedience. His active obedience was completely sinless. Which one of you convicts me of sin? John 8, 46. He was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4, 15. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2, 22. Humiliation. When he calls himself son of man, it also means he had to humble himself to come into this world. No one is called son of man who's restricted to heaven. Angels are not called son of man when they are restricted to heaven. But those that have descended and humiliated themselves to come to the earth or are living on the earth, the son of man, Jesus is that. He left glory that he had with the father before the world was, John 17, to come into the world, to humiliate himself. And this humiliation is not only walking among us, but even a shameful, ignoble death on the cross. He died on the cross. And few people at the time, and even few people throughout history in comparison to the many who have lived, have truly understood the purpose of that death on their behalf. Son of man for that. But he's also son of man for exaltation. As it says in Daniel chapter 7, 13, and 14, when he comes in the clouds, the Son of Man, all the nations of the earth are going to be given to him, and he will have an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion will have no end, Daniel says. Ultimately, there will be, and forever, exaltation. That's who this Son of Man is. He says that he must be lifted up. What does it mean? What does Jesus mean when he says to be lifted up? If we take the popular understanding of Jesus being lifted up, the popular understanding is, well, if you just exalt Christ in your life, or if you just say wonderful and good things, exalt Christ, glorify Christ in the presence of other people, if you present him in a very attractive way to your audience, if you do things like that, 
That's what the Bible means by lifting up Christ. So let's lift up Christ today. Now, it is true we should glorify Christ, we should exalt Christ, but what they mean is if you manipulate the circumstances of your hearers, dim the lights, have, have a spotlight on the preacher, um, um, ha- have a smoke screen, have wonderful music, make sure you have handsome and beautiful people leading your, your music band at the front, right? And all the, the very, um, the most skilled among all the people leading the music. You, if you present the circumstance when Christ's name is, is preached in, with those physical entrapments, then you are lifting up Christ. But that's not what Scripture means. Scripture doesn't mean anything like that. Scripture means John 8, 28. Turn to John 8, 28. John 8, 28. Jesus therefore said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. When you lift up the Son of Man, who's the you? His antagonists, his enemies. He's saying to his enemies, you are going to lift me up. It's not the people of God lifting him up, the true people of God. It's the false people of God, his enemies, who are going to desire what? We know they are going to desire his death. By the end of chapter 8, they're going to try to stone him to death, right? So he's telling his enemies, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. Chapter 12, John chapter 12, 12, 32. John 12, 32. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. Now, what did he mean? But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. The multitude therefore answered him, We have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. And how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? He says in 32, If I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. That's his statement. John the Apostle clarifies in verse 33 that he meant his death. To be lifted up meant the cross of Christ, just like the serpent was lifted up. He meant his death. He would be placed on the cross, lifted up from the earth in that sense. He doesn't mean up into the clouds or among the stars. He just meant lifted up on a cross, lifted up from the surface of the earth onto the cross. John says he meant his death. The multitudes also understood his death in verse 34. At this point, the multitudes understand. We know what you mean. They said, we have heard out of the law that the Christ is to remain forever. We heard that the Christ is supposed to live forever. Your throne is forever, O God. Uh, Isaiah 45, I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Psalm 45, 6, that your throne is forever. Or how about when 
John, uh, Daniel, Daniel 7, 13 and 14 says that, and he and all nations and peoples will serve him for his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is one which will have no end. So they knew those verses and those verses are true. But what they didn't understand is you have to have the death of Christ precede this exaltation of Christ with an eternal kingdom. You cannot have the eternal kingdom first and then the death of Christ later. And you cannot exclude the death of Christ because it's throughout the Old Testament. Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Psalm 16, it's everywhere, right? The death of Christ is everywhere mentioned throughout the Old Testament. So their confusion is not understanding these, these verses and the sequence of events. So they say, the son, how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Nobody's been telling us to anticipate his death. Everybody's been telling us to anticipate his eternal kingdom. And they knew he meant his death because it would contradict the eternal kingdom part as far as their misunderstanding of it by their teachers. So to be lifted up means to be placed on the cross. And this is no accident. We also see it says must. It must happen. It must happen for what reason? It must happen because this commandment I received from my Father, John 10, 18. It must happen because as the disciples prayed, Acts 4, 28, uh, according to your predetermined plan, this has happened, Acts 4, 28. It happened because you predestined it to occur. God predestined that the way of salvation for all of us would be by means of the death of Christ. That would be the payment. That would be the means by which we would be saved. Jesus must go to the cross. And further, we have to ask according to verse 15. Why does he say he must be lifted up? That, so that, or in order that, Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. If we don't believe in his death, we're not going to have eternal life. These verses are together. They are one sentence. Even in our Bibles, they are one sentence. One sentence. That does not start a new sentence or a new thought, a different topic. He must be lifted up in order that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. They are bound up together. If he doesn't die, then there is no possibility of eternal life. If there's no death, then there is no resurrection of the dead by, uh, by Christ first on our behalf. It says in Romans 4.25, he was delivered up because of our transgressions and he was raised because of our justification. He was delivered up to death because of our transgressions, but he was raised from the dead because of our justification. We cannot be justified, we cannot be forgiven of our transgressions unless he dies and rises again. It must happen this way. He made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin to become the sin offering on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. There is no righteousness unless Jesus becomes our sin offering. He has to die in our place so that we are not 
sent to eternal death. He must die for us. That's the connection between verses 14 and 15. It has to happen that way. If we don't have the death of Christ, we will not have eternal life. But this eternal life belongs to whom? It says in verse 15, whoever. And according to verse 16, that whoever believes in him. It says whoever. Who are the whoever? Whoever. Does he mean that everyone can believe? No, because he already said in John 3, 3, you must be born again. So those who are born again are the ones who will receive uh, eternal life or the kingdom of God. He doesn't mean when he says whoever, everyone can. Many people never hear of Christ. Many, Many people don't believe in Christ. Whoever doesn't mean that. Whoever has to mean as it says in Romans 10, 11 to 13. As it says in Romans 10, 11 to 13, we read earlier. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The whoever here has to do with no distinctions, meaning it doesn't matter who you are. You can be old or young. You can be male or female. You could be Jew or Greek. It doesn't matter who you are. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is what he means by whoever. The whoever is a qualified whoever in the context of John 3 and the rest of Scripture. Whoever includes all kinds of people. Furthermore, verse 15 says, whoever believes, whoever believes or has faith, whoever believes or has faith. John 3.16 repeats that, whoever believes in him. John 3.36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It is necessary to believe. It is necessary. That is a condition. The condition for our salvation in terms of what must happen within us is that we must have faith or believe, which means it excludes people who don't believe. If people don't believe, people never heard and never believe, people hear the gospel but disbelieve, they walk away from it, then they don't believe. It's only for those who believe to receive the eternal life. And we know, as he was saying about rebirth, that this belief would be a gift. It would be a gift. It proceeds from the new life that God instantly and miraculously gives to the individual, changing the heart and producing faith or belief. Not everyone can believe. Not everyone does believe. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3, 2, not all have faith. Not all, 2 Thessalonians 3, 2. Not all have faith. But it is including everyone who does believe. Further, in him. Notice that, in him. Your Bible may say, 
whoever may whoever believes may in him have eternal life. I think though that the phraseology should be whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Not whoever believes may in him have eternal life because that opens the door to the possibility that if you just believe that you'll receive eternal life and the eternal life is found in him, but you don't have to believe in him to, to receive it because God may just grant it to you if one believes in universalism or inclusivism. In universalism and inclusivism, these doctrines teach that it's not necessary for one to have conscious knowledge and conscious belief in Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, to get to heaven. Inclusivism and universalism teach it's unnecessary to believe in him to go to heaven. But that's not what is meant in verse 15. The Greek can and should be translated, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. After all, look at the next verse. The next verse says that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. They do it correctly in verse 16, and sometimes they do it incorrectly in verse 15. It should be whoever believes in him. Isn't that not what Jesus said? John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Acts 4, 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Isaiah 45, 22. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. Turn to me or look to me. Turn to me and be saved, just like the serpent. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. This is the way of Scripture. It is necessary to have this conscious faith in Christ to be saved. Further, have eternal life. It's possible to have it now. It's a present possession. To begin to experience it now and for it to last for all eternity, right? It is possible to have it now. Notice also in 3.36, 3.36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He does not say will have eternal life, though that is also true. He's stressing the fact that it's a present possession, has eternal life. It's something that we own and have now. John 5, John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. That transference from death to life has already occurred when one believes. When one believes, then you do not come into judgment. You have eternal life. You have already passed out of death and you are in life. This is the teaching of Scripture. It's a present possession. Why would this be necessary to understand? If it's something we own now, it's our present possession after we believe, then it's not based on our works. Right? It's not based on our works, but it's based on our faith in the death of Christ, which we believe now. 
If it were based on our works, if salvation were based on our works, we could never say we have eternal life now. This is why false religions such as the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, they can never say whatever their beliefs about the afterlife, they can never say or have assurance that they know what's going to happen to them once they die. Nobody has that assurance. But that assurance is given to us. That assurance can be known and experienced by us that we truly do have eternal life and belong to God. 1 John 5, to 13. 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. In 11 and 12, he's saying you have it. He has it. The one who believes the witness. And in 13, he says the reason he wrote the letter is so that we might know that we have it. Not that we might obtain it or will obtain it, but that we have it now. Therefore, it's not based on good works. It's based on the present reality that we are justified by faith in Christ. Eternal life. John 3.15 says that this life is eternal. It's life in that we have the sentence of death hanging over our heads. We have the sentence of death based on Adam's sin, based on our own sins, for both reasons. Adam's sin and our sin. We deserve eternal death. That sentence of death is against all of us unless we are found in Christ. Then we will have life. And this life, it begins now, but it lasts for all eternity. And this life is not a sensual paradise. This life is not extinction of the soul and of the person. This life is nothing like those things which false religions teach. This life is being in the presence of life himself, that is Christ our Lord. Our life will be in harmony with his life. The life he has, he has given to us, and we will enjoy this presence of Christ the communion with Christ, harmony with Christ, without any sin, without any evil, without any death, no pain, no sorrow, no tears, nothing that bothers us, nothing that harasses us, nothing that torments us in this life will be in the life to come. And this is what we have for all eternity. All eternity. What more could we ask? What more could we want? The heart that's been changed and the heart that believes in the gospel, this is what we want. This is what we desire. We desire to experience a taste of that now in this life, but we will experience it to the full when we are with him. There's no more need. There's no more desire. Who cares what we will do for eternity if we are in the presence of Christ? I, I, we should never be bothered. I'm never bothered by that question I, I don't think it has ever 
bothered me. I've never been curious because it doesn't matter. I just know I'm going to be with my Lord forever and that's all that matters. And if that means I'm worshiping him or whatever we are doing, it doesn't matter because there's going to be peace. There's going to be harmony. There's going to be love. There's going to be this communion with him for all eternity. That which is breached now because of our sin and brings all kinds of mayhem and chaos to our life now will not exist, the Bible tells us, because there's no longer any curse. There's no longer any death, weeping, tears, sorrow, Revelation 21.4. So let us believe in the death of Christ for our forgiveness of sins, and let us preach that to others. There is no other hope. There is no other means, only in Jesus Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.